Jocelyn Sockle Fraze, host of the McMaster University podcast, Living Theory. I'm here today with two guests, Caitlin and David. Um, and as with last week, you're not going to be hearing a whole bunch from me as I'm going to be facilitating a discussion between them. So I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves to you. Caitlin, please go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Caitlin Debeke. I'm in the English and Cultural Studies Department in the third year of dissertation writing. Um, I'm also sort of uh, connected to the Indigenous Studies Department. Um, and uh, my research is interested in trees and the stories that they might tell and how those stories might relate to contemporary Indigenous literature. Okay, David, go ahead. Uh, so my name is David. I am a first-year master's student at uh, the English Department of McMaster. Um, a lot of my research tends to go into um, thinking about science fiction and landscapes there and how the imagined landscape and the natural landscape, where those two collide and intersect. All right, so the project that we're taking up today is a little bit different from what we usually do. Um, both of my guests have brought a separate article and we're gonna talk about how these kind of two pieces of literature fit into a field, work together, don't work together, um, as a way of thinking through theory and also maybe beginning to think through theory and research. So first I'm going to have my guests introduce um, their, their pieces. So Caitlin? Thanks. Um, so today I'm going to look at Indigenous place, thought, and agency amongst humans and non-humans. First woman and sky woman go on a European world tour. So the article looks at distinctions between Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee views of the land and the environment, um, next to Western views of, of the land or the environment. Um, the major distinction that it's drawing, from my understanding of the article, um, is what Watts Paulus refers to as, um, on the Western side of things, an ontological epistemological divide, which really just means that on the Western side of things, there's a divide between the production of knowledge and the acting out of knowledge or the living of knowledge. Um, and on the Indigenous side of things, the knowledge comes from life, comes from experience, comes from the land itself. And so there is no separation of knowledge and the land. Um, and so one of her, her main arguments in this piece is that that separation that occurs uh, in Western thinking between knowledge production and the land has been used to sets up, set up all kinds of um, separations between humans and the land, between humans and non-humans. Um, and so she sees that as being in part responsible for a lot of the um, exploitation of, of the earth in a way that's become detrimental not only to the earth and non-human societies, but also to us, to, to humans. Um, and so I could go into a lot more detail about that, but I think that's probably sort of the main thrust of, of what she's trying to identify in her piece. Okay, awesome, thank you. Um, and then let's have David just introduce again, actually that was a really good example, um, just kind of the basic argument that your text is putting forward. Sure, um, <clears throat> my text is called The uh, Comedy of Survival, Literary College and Play Ethic by Joseph Meeker. Um, it's less of a specific type of article dealing with a specific aspect, but it's more of a general establishment of this theory 
Um, this was first written sometime in the 70s, I think, 74, I want to say, but I'm not entirely sure, and it's gone through several editions since then. But a large part of this text and the theories that Meeker puts forward has survived to this day in general eco-critical theory. Eco theory. Um, so in Comedy of Survival, what he really advocates for is that there are two main genres, I guess. Uh, one is tragedy and one is comedy. And he really interprets tragedy as more um, strong emotions, uh, life or death struggles, good versus evil, uh, all these conventions that we know about in literary texts. Uh, comedy, which is the genre that he advocates for and what he thinks uh, literary ecology or criticism should advocate for, is the idea that in biology, in the real world, um, that's not really reflected. The universe doesn't care if you're good or bad. It cares whether you live or die. Um, and he really applies this scientific principle of ecology, of evolution, um, but less so evolution, but more ecology, um, in deciphering the actions of literary heroes, um, and maybe discovering some new literary heroes that we might not conventionally think of because, again, of that lack of life or death and good or evil. Um, and one of the things that has actually uh, gone on even today and in part, I think, links these two uh, texts is the idea that there is a, a cultural perception of a divide between culture and nature. Um, and then in doing that, there's an elevation of human culture over nature. Um, and that's partially what's responsible for the idea of tragedy. You know, like my struggle, the human struggle is much more important than natural struggle. So Jocelyn, I had this thought about how this article sort of relates to the project that, um, that you're doing that we're a part of here today. Uh, so what Watts Palace talks about how in, in, in Western or like academic um, environments, there is this tendency to separate theory from um, real life experiences. So it's almost like theory becomes this lens that we can look through and apply to different situations. Um, and inherent in that sort of um, construction is the idea that there's a separation between the theory and the knowledge making and the lived experience um, comes after or separate or um, is somehow placed beneath that. Um, and then that's used to justify the idea that human beings are in some way special, right, or superior to the rest of creation because they are the only ones blessed with this ability. And then on the other hand, you have um, what, what Watts Palace terms uh, place thought and non-human agency. And that very simply is, is the truth um, or the reality that thought is produced by the earth itself and is communicated to human beings um, who then can communicate that in their own way. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of what we produce um, in an, as indigenous knowledge comes from the land itself. And so there's no separation there between the theory or the lens or the knowledge and the lived experiences that we have every day. Um, it becomes one and the same. And so that reminds me of um, sort of one of the, what, what I understand to be one of the goals of this project um, which is, you know, to sort of explore the relationship between theory and praxis, or 
in other words, the relationship between theory, ideas, knowledge, and how that might intervene or be a part of our day-to-day -day experiences. Um, so I just thought that that was, was kind of a neat matching that, that's happening between this article and, uh, and the project here. Yeah, like the separation or this perceived separation between culture and I guess people and nature is like one of the things that Mika that proposes, I don't know if it's entirely correct or not, but it comes directly from a lot of classical Greek or maybe Hebrew traditions and literature, which so much of Western literature is influenced by. Um, this idea of tragedy of uh, evil triumphing over good that you know we have this central character who contemplates life and all this deep human philosophy um, and he, he thinks that tragedy is not global we have, we have cultures and societies where we don't they don't have that kind of um, ideas about the separation between people and nature and comedy he says or he advocates for is more of a universal genre which doesn't have those kind of strong, deep, conflicting emotions. Yeah, it's interesting to me that that human tragedy is in some way a human arrogance. Yeah. Um, look at me. I'm the only being that could be suffering in this way. It's such a burden to be a human, um, which takes as an assumption a, a separation between humans and the rest of creation as if we weren't animals ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's an assumption mm -hmm. that, oh, I made a mistake yeah. and there's some higher power that's going to punish me for this because the universe cares that I made this mistake. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I have a question to pose to you guys about um, the nature of the fields that each of your texts are intervening in. So what I want to know is, um, do you think there's something particular about the fields of eco-criticism that lets your essays and the authors of them uh, make the interventions they're making. So, David, do you want to? Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the main problems with eco-criticism at its inception, and I think still continues on today, is that it's a little too vague in its uh, methodology. Right? Most critical, most modes of critical theory have some methodology to them. You analyze it this way, and then you get the results that this critical theory uh, should get. Um, but ecocritism is, I think, almost intentionally vague. It's very interdisciplinary, um, which is good because it allows you to consider the same problem from a wide number of aspects. Um, but at the same time, it lacks uniformity. Um, and this is pro sometimes problematic because different scholars can be doing ecocriticism um, and come at it from totally different, almost unrecognizable ways. Um, and this kind of allowed for Joseph Meeker, he, ha he had a lot of ideas. <laughs> um, and some of them have not survived the, uh, the, pa the passage of time. Um, so, but like one of the ideas that he has, which has shaped uh, eco-criticism and like, I guess continues to influence eco-criticism today, is that idea of um, like, there shouldn't be a separation between humans and the biology of nature, right? Because we are innately part of that biology. And that anything we do um, in his comic mode of, inter of discourse and interactions with nature, we should just, I guess, be natural. I guess that's what, that, that's what, the, what he advocates for and how we should look for people uh, or characters in literature that are 
exhibiting these kinds of naturalness, this biological naturalness. Only in literature or in real life as well? Uh, Meeker focuses specifically on literature. Yeah. Um, although, like, activism is a big part of yogism as well. So. Yeah. No, I was just curious whether that's that, that idea of, of interrogating, like, literary characters. Mm -hmm. If it can be expanded at all, right? Because that's kind of the way the perspective from my article that it doesn't that theory isn't separate from reality or from like a lived experience. Right. And so, are there ways? I'm just curious about whether there are ways that that Meeker's exploration of literary characters could also be an exploration of you or I. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because. Mika writes in a very peculiar way. Yeah. It's very non-academic. He writes it like a story. Uh, I mean, he tells the story of his family, too. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess through that, he kind of urges you, not explicitly, but implicitly, through his the way his text works, to think about your own family. Mm -hmm. um, or, I guess, the broader global family in that sort of same regard, where you can analyze uh, historical figures, um, contemporary figures, and even yourself in this context of, like, am I going through the tragic mode of um, interaction, or am I going through the comic mode? Mm -hmm. And so that reminds me, um, this is a little off topic, Jocelyn, but... No, go ahead, please. Um, it reminds me of, of one of the sort of... It's also sort of a central concept in, um, in indigenous literary theory. Um, so there's this author, his name is uh, Christopher Tutong, and he says that our creation story um, is the original basis of indigenous socio-critical thought. So in other words, while we have these quote-unquote stories that are perceived frequently um, by non-indigenous scholars as myth um, or as metaphor or as like containing like like there's a moral in the story that we can extra like extract or it's like an abstract way of thinking, right? To indigenous scholars, um, it's not a story, it's a, a history. They're, that's why we, we call them oral histories, right? And so um, the, the function of, of story in that way is essential to this understanding, um, to, this, to this indigenous epistemology or this indigenous belief system, right? That, that knowledge comes from, from the earth. Um, and so in that way, Treating our creation histories as real, um, rather than as myth, is sits at the at the core of um, Vanessa Paulus's article because she's talking about how those those histories are what inform our understanding of reality now. And so, just to detail that history a little bit. Um, we understand that there was a woman who lived in um, another world, sort of above this one, in a sky world. And she was curious and was looking in this hole in her world and falls through. And she falls into this, um, I mean, it's the world that we live in now, but it didn't look like this, right? It was dark and there was only water um, and only water animals. And she ends up getting caught by... Um, these birds that fly by who see that she's in she's in need so they c catch her and slow down her descent 
and notice that she's got none of the appendages necessary for living in their world, right? Mm -hmm. This is one of complete water. So they ask uh, if anyone will help her in her need, and this giant sea turtle says, you know, stick her on my back. I can totally carry her for a while. So they put her on the back of this turtle, um, and she's she's resting there, and I should have mentioned she's pregnant um, and, mm -hmm. like, about to pop. So she is, again, in, like, extreme need for land. She can't give birth and live on the back of a turtle in the middle of the ocean forever. And so to speed up sort of the course of events here, um, there's there are several water animals who volunteer to get earth from the bottom of this expansive water. And one after another they try, and one after another they die. Um, mm. Until Muskrat, who is a tiny little being right like these these guys are not particularly well endowed with strength or size or speed or any of those qualities that we might associate with you know, like a stronger animal right and the other animals in the story um laugh at him you know like if we couldn't do it what chance do you have but muskrat dives down and down and down and down and um comes floating back up to the surface after a very long time after everyone gives up hope and has expired is is past but has um, when Sky or when the woman, Sky woman, who's fallen and is sitting on the back of the turtle, opens up Muskrat's hand. There's earth there, and there's a little bit of earth in his mouth too. And so she takes that earth and she puts it on the turtle's back, and she dances in a circle, and it creates what we call Turtle Island, right, in North America. And so our creation story evolves, you know, out of that, and it keeps going, and it takes days to recite. Um, but from that history. We know that everything was created out of that same handful of dirt. Because after that, after that world is created, and she gives birth to a daughter, and her daughter ends up giving birth to two male twins, and they create all of the animals and the mountains and the rivers and everything that we know to be in creation today. They also, and lastly, create human beings out of the same substance that they've created everything else. That handful of mud, that handful of dirt. And so Watts Powellus talks about how rather than viewing stories as myth um, or as metaphor, we see them as reality, as truth, as history. And so we know that we are all made of the same substance. We are all connected in that way. And therefore the knowledge that is produced from that earth, from that land, um, from the body of first woman, the woman who was first born here, right, um, is knowledge that we all have access to, and that's what she calls place thought, right? Because the, there is no separation between place and between thought. It is one and the same, and it's communicated to us frequently through animals. So an example that she gives is our clan systems. Um, and how when we were in need um, for structure in our society, right, we watched the animals and we watched how they organized themselves. And um, there was one woman who had a, an encounter with a bear. And from that encounter, she realized that we needed these clan systems. Um, so we needed to be divided into these groups um, and those groups would support one another. So the, the, that's just an example of the way in which um, knowledge that comes from 
the earth from creation is um, shared with us and then we live that knowledge. There is no separation there, which means that there is no separation between humans and the rest of creation. So I just went on a huge long rant, but it, what made me think of that is how you're talking about the value that Meeker is giving to, to story, right? As mm -hmm. a way of um, thinking about ourselves and our place within, you know, these greater, what I call kinship networks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and stories, the value of stories, not just in terms of, you know, some separate theoretical up in the ivory tower way, but also the value of story as like a real lived experience. All right. Thank you very much. And that is, uh, that seems like a great place to wrap up. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I can't like, things. Just edit out these parts yeah. where we. Okay. Keep off and stuff. No, this